This is God's word. It says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation is, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose." And this is God's word. It's absolutely true, and he gives it to us because he loves us. Let's pray. Well, Father, we, we are groaning, we are sighing, we've all experienced the frustration of well, what the creation is experiencing. We want our faith to become sight, that sin will be taken away, and, and suffering would be a, a bad dream. So I, I ask that you would help us learn to pray for hope and in hope, uh, to help us to learn to use the hope we have in Christ. And most of all, show us that when we don't know what to say, that you, you too are praying for us. And so convict us of sin, convict us of our unbelief, and grow us, uh, conform us into the image of your Son, Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Now this passage is about frustration and, and futility. Uh, a good way to, de to describe futility is just Ecclesiastes 1.1. It's, it's, it's the, the same word. It's chasing the wind. It's uh, partaking in a wild goose chase, but there's no goose. <laughs> uh, it's doing the same thing over and over again and expecting the same results. Of just being beaten up and worn, worn down. Right? That's, that's what this passage is about, is saying, how do you deal with that? And a great example of frustration and futility and groaning, of course, is uh, good old Charlie Brown. <laughs> He's been trying to kick that elusive football for as long as Hope Church has been around, since 1953. And so here's one uh, depressing <laughs> take from, from the cartoon from 1970. Kids, if, you have, if there's the note sheet in the back, you can actually follow along. It's printed out for you. If you don't have a note sheet, go ahead and get it. 
But it's Charlie Brown walking along and says, she must be kidding, because there's Lucy saying, Charlie Brown. <laughs> He's like, I can't believe it. And you know Charlie Brown, he never smiles. He says, Charlie Brown, I'll hold the football, and you come running up and kick it. And Charlie Brown busts out in Scripture, how long, O oh Lord? <laughs> and Lucy turns to him and says, you're quoting from the sixth chapter of Isaiah, aren't you? Charlie Brown. And she keeps going while he's winding up, walking back. She says, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without men and the land is utterly desolate. Actually, there's a note of protest, she says in the question, as asked by Isaiah. For we might say that he was unwilling to accept the finality of the Lord's judgment. <laughs> Just as Charlie Brown comes running, she pulls the football. And, you know, arg, he falls down. And then she turns and looks at him and says, How long, Charlie Brown? All your life. All your life. It's brutal. That's just one of the many ways she has tormented him. She's, she blames muscle spasms. Something's wrong with, them, with the physical world. She actually quotes Ecclesiastes once. For everything there is a season and it was time to pull away the football. Or this year's football brought to you courtesy of women's liberation. Don't trust a woman's tears, Charlie Brown. <laughs> Where in every program, Charlie Brown, there's always a few last-minute changes. I mean, you could go on and on and read 50 years worth of Charles Schultz just trying to get you to see that this world is falling apart and it's all symbolized by that stupid football of a futility, of frustrating frustration and groaning. Right. I mean, that's what Paul's saying. All of creation is groaning. We Christians are groaning. You don't even have to be a Christian to groan to know that this world is not as it should be. And everything is, is sighing and throbbing in pain. And the question that we're going to look at is, is, how do you pray in the midst of that? You know, as you're flying through the air because you've tried again and are about to experience the pain, how do you pray? What do you say? How do you pray for hope? And this is why I wanted to end with this chapter in Romans 8, because I think this is probably one of the most realistic description of what the world is like without being hopelessly cynical, I mean, somewhat where Charlie Brown lives, nor with being blindly optimistic of just saying, you know, it'll be okay, or I'm just going to go watch football and not think about it. It's, it's real and dripping with hope. Look at verse 18. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. And Paul's saying what you right now are currently experiencing, what you have in your past, what you will experience in your future, um, what's coming in he from heaven down to earth can't even be compared. You can't get your mind wrapped around it. It's that great. There's a tidal wave of glory that is coming. That when you change, everything itself is going to change. When Christians become who they were meant to be in Christ, the mountains are going to be infinitely more beautiful. So what's coming for all those who love God, for all who are loved by God, it's so great, somehow it's going to justify everything you've been through. You're going to look, look at God, look at your Savior and say, that's why you did that. I couldn't see that then going to make everything seem like, this is how uh, St. Teresa of Avila said it, 
Like everything you've been through was like one night in a bad hotel. It's just a bad dream. The problem is we live in the bad hotel. <laughs> it's right here, right now. How do you pray? How do you pray through that? Because it doesn't feel like one night. It's a lifetime. Uh, you know, a, a day might be a thousand years to the Lord, but it's, it's 24 hours for us. And so what you and I need in a world that's marked by futility and frustration is the ability to grab a hold of something called hope to get you through it. And if you're not in the bad hotel, you're not aware of it right now, it's, it's something the Bible is always preparing you for. Right. We, this is what I want you to see. We have something true to say, no matter the circumstance that you are going through or your friends and your family. Something nobody else can say. We have something to hold on to. And this is the way I heard it uh, this past week. Let me get my microphone to stay on here. It was a testimony of a Christian counselor who got converted because he was, after having his doctorate, after uh, going through all the coursework and getting ready to be a counselor in a, in a hospital surrounded by 200 patients in the psych ward. You know, he's listening to this young woman who, who had lost all her hope. She was just sitting there wailing and groaning and saying, will anyone love me? Will anyone love me? Can anyone love me? And he said, in that moment, I knew all of my education, the, the Ivy League, uh, I could give her a diagnosis, but it didn't treat the person. And so I started looking at the Bible and saying, is there something in there that'll give me the ability and give her the ability to have something true, to have something helpful, to have something hopeful, regardless of the circumstance? I mean, Paul says, all suffering, doesn't matter, he's, he's covering everything you and I have been through or will go through. I mean, it's as realistic as, as you will find for any worldview, any religion, because it's true. Which means we could, you could go as a relief worker to Italy right now, uh, into the wars of Syria, down into the flood, flood victims in Louisiana, I mean into the depths and darkness of everything that there is in this world. And you could read Romans 8 and set people free, give them hope, and learn how to pray. And so we, we need help. I need help with this. Because at some point, we're all going to get to that point uh, where it says in, in verse 26, where we do not know what to pray for. We don't even know what to ask for. And we know it's going to work out for good, but how do you know what's good in the moment? And so let's look at this. Let's look at the hope of a groaning creation. We're going to look at the hope of a groaning church and the hope of a groaning spirit. And uh, yeah, we'll come out hopeful, God willing. <laughs> But look, suffering and groaning are the words that Paul uses to describe this present time, that all of creation is eagerly longing and waiting for the day when Jesus comes back and changes you and me. That's verse, verse 19. It's eagerly longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And this is the, the Christian understanding of why the world is the way it is. Um, it's the Christian view of the world, that you and I aren't the only ones growing 
Uh, your pets are. <laughs> uh, the land itself is groaning. I mean, we're not the only ones saying this is not how life ought to be. Why does it hurt so bad? I mean, the stars, the trees, I mean, it's a little poetic, but it, this is what Paul's getting at, that the creation knows something that a lot of us take for granted, that this world is not how it should be, that for all the beauty of the sunsets, all the, the good times, the joy we experience right now, that's, that's just a glimpse of what it could be. But it's fallen, it's broken, it's decaying, it's rotted. I mean, there's a sense in which the created world knows that something will change and has to change because this is not how things were intended to be. And so if somebody says, how can you believe in God when there's tornadoes and earthquakes and natural disasters? I mean, Paul's hinting at this idea that the creation is a mess because of him who subjected it to futility, but because of sin. You know, if, it's kind of like, well, if, if we were to never force my, my three-year-old son to clean his room, it would just continually get worse and worse and worse. <laughs> he was really just acting like me. I mean, I should be honest. <laughs> but, I mean, that's the picture, is that when you take away somebody who was intended to be a good steward, you know, you know what it's like to have a bad boss, a bad manager. Things just fall apart. And when sin came into the world and we started doing exactly what God told us not to do, all creation itself fell with us, and it knows it. So everything is subjected to vanity, to futility, all because of Adam and Eve in the garden who decided they wanted to do things their way. That's what he's talking about. When him who subjected it in futilities, it's referring back to Genesis. This is a whole big picture view that God... Walked with man, there were no tears, no sorrow, no suffering. And then Adam and Eve determined to do things my way, their way. And all of creation fell with them. And that's why you will find thorns amidst the flowers, as the one hymn writer Ann Steele wrote. You can see beauty among the roses, but you reach for it and you get pricked. There's beauty in death, flourishing in decay, groaning in joy. Um, Put it this way, think about a hermit crab, that glorious creature that it is. <laughs> you know, might, maybe it was your first pet. I think I never had one, my sister did, and she forgot to feed it. <laughs> when you think about these hermit crabs, you know, everyone, it's, a, it's a really simple creature, it has a shell, uh, it feeds and survives off the rotting and decay, that's what it eats. Uh, rotted wood, whatever it can find on the beach. If you take what Paul is telling us here, uh, the hermit crab is longing for us to get our act together because he is glorifying God better than I am right now. I heard this from Elizabeth Elliot who pointed this out. That he's doing exactly what God has designed him to do by eating and cleaning up all of the waste. And what that hermit crab is longing for is God's sons to be revealed. Women, your sons, so it's sons and daughters, but it's saying, waiting for Jesus to come back and enable us to be who we were created to be. <laughs> it's really humbling, isn't it? That the hermit crab, a goofy little creature, we paint their shells, right? humiliated probably, <laughs> 
And he knows something more about God's glory than we do. And all of creation is in labor pains, waiting for this new world to be born, waiting for heaven to come down, for everything to change in a blink of an eye. That's, that's the hope of creation. You think about all this natural beauty in this world. <laughs> this is great. If you go out in the Adirondacks, think about this next time you're there. Think about how much more infinitely beautiful it will be. Because that's the promise. And it's kind of like a whole other dimension will be opened up. Because the hope of a groaning creation is that futility, frustration, decay, and death, that it's only temporary. And all of creation is waiting for Jesus to come back. They want new management. <laughs> they want Jesus. And I will tell you, you will not find a, re a religion like Christianity that sees the world like this, that is hopefully realistic, uh, that, that's honest about who we are, and hopeful at the same time. All right? When you think about Buddhism, it says in a lot of ways that your suffering is an illusion. That your goal is to, to be disconnected from the earth, to not have to think about it. Right? Charlie Brown, there is, you may have been aiming for that football and it's about to hurt, but it, you know, it's not real. Islam's future of vision of the future doesn't include earth renewed in the same way. And if you want to get there, Charlie Brown, you better actually kick the football. You better get it right. Or our secular hope. Charlie Brown, you're never going to kick the football. <laughs> Lucy will always torment you all the days of your life. Eat and drink and be merry, for then you die. Or even the ancient Greek world that Paul is speaking into, uh, they believe the earthly stuff, the physical stuff. It was dirty and gross, not something to aim for, not something to cherish. Not something to even look forward to. So if you wanted to be super spiritual, you didn't want to think about earth. Think about heaven. Up there in the skies and the clouds, that's where the ideal is. And so they wouldn't, you know, they didn't, they didn't care about their bodies. And Christianity comes along and says, heaven is coming to transform earth because here is something good that God made that we have corrupted. But when Jesus returns, he's going to take that all away. He's going to make it as it should be. And even, it's, it's going to amp it up. I mean, it's not going back to the Garden of Eden. It's going to be better. It's going to be a city. It's going to be civilization and culture. The whole world will be filled with God's glory, not just one particular garden. And so this is our hope. It's a groaning creation. It's a story that we've been brought into, and it actually has a happy ending. It's, and it's great. It's good news because it's true. And that connects into our hope as a groaning church of, of believers who groan. Because it's not only that poor hermit crab. <laughs> it's Christians. I mean, you, you read this in verse 23, that not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly, while we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And if you're following Paul closely here, he's already said you're adopted as a son. He's talking about when you get to see what God has already declared you to be. Right? The church is groaning. We know that we're a mess. We know we're frustrated by trying to do the right thing and always falling short. 
And so here's, here's the Bible's way of describing this reality, the way of describing heaven that's coming down. He uses this word, first fruits. We've experienced those who have trust, put their trust in Christ. You've already got a glimpse of that future I painted for you, that Paul painted for you. The, the what, you know, it's, it's a farming metaphor. If you start your, like the corn's all ready, and you pull off that first ear, and, and you, you chow down in your sweet corn, it's just as much a part of that harvest as that last ear of corn that you pull off, right? And so that's what Paul's saying here, that we experience the beginning of the new creation. We are the first fruits of salvation, the beginning of this whole thing, the whole world, the whole cosmos, being transformed, being made new. And it, that day started when Jesus raised from the dead. This is good news. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 22 and 23. It says, For just as in Adam all died and decayed, it's the same idea here in Romans 8, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in its own order. Christ is the first fruits, but then it is coming, all those who belong to him. And so if you want to know what your hope is, you're supposed to look at what the resurrected Jesus is like. What are you eagerly anticipating and longing for in your physical body? Because the day that Jesus was raised was the beginning of the harvest, the day the new creation dawned. And you remember Jesus, he was walking, he was physical, he, but he was different. It was almost like he was from another, another dimension. <laughs> because there are times where he would sit down with his friends and eat. He ate fish with them. But there were also times when he sat down with his friends, well, he walked on the road to Emmaus for miles before they even recognized him. He wasn't a ghost, he ate bread, he was physical, but there were times where he just walked through doors, apparently. And the whole idea, I've heard it put, that's really helpful, is like we have, we have our limited senses, right? And so our, our new redeemed bodies are going to have something even greater. You've heard of the sixth sense, but I mean, think seven, eight, nine, infinity. This is, this is the hope. Our bodies will be transformed to be conformed into the image of Christ, as Paul says here. It's the new creation. This is our hope. That when God says, you are my sons, now see what I've made you to be. You're going you're gonna to enter into the world of joy. So Jesus started the new creation. Listen to Romans 8.11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, and He does, then He who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through His Spirit that lives in you. And so this process of the new creation, when you become a Christian, uh, begins the moment you say, Jesus, I need help. I need your grace. I need your kindness. The Holy Spirit comes rushing in and you don't just become better, you become, you become something otherworldly. And the same power that raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in you, just in seed form. We're waiting for it to grow. That's our hope. It's this whole idea that the Holy Spirit unzips you, He climbs in, and God dwells with you, and you are now part of Jesus' first fruits. Uh, the beginning of the end. So, 
here it is. Right? The promise is you're going to get a new body. You're going to get an upgrade. <laughs> Some of us are very excited about that. It's better than the iPhone 7 because it won't wear out. I mean, as we talk about these things, I mean, doesn't it make you groan? I mean, just ache? Want it to be true? I mean, it, if you don't want it to be true, it's probably because you haven't lived long enough um, to have something horrible that you want taken away. But really, you have. I mean, kids know. You, you start crying right out of the womb. I mean, this is why we cry for help. This is why Paul says we cry, literally cry, Abba, Father. It's not just saying, Father, help me. It's, a, it's an emotional plea. I mean, it's, it's like little Ezra or, or little Joshua Matete McKeon, just, just screaming, pay attention to me. So while we feel like Charlie Brown in this endless loop of futility, we as Christians have this certain hope that all things sad will come untrue. That we can groan because of the thorns. That we can groan honestly because we know that it really is not how God intended it to be. And this is the context for prayer. And you see how realistic this is? It's not saying everything's miserable, so you know, just, just go drink yourself into oblivion. It's not, it's not a blindly optimistic in saying, you should just go hide. Stick your head in the sand and it'll be okay. It's saying, face the suffering, look at it, compare it to the glory that is to come. You can look at it in the eye and cry, and it's okay. It's actually the whole description for the Christian life. It's continual groaning, it's weakness. The Spirit is helping us in our weakness in verse 26. I mean, this is our hope, this is our comfort, this is our relief. For the Christian is someone who's been born into a world of hope. Not in a, I hope it will happen, but in a certainty. For in this hope we were saved, as Paul says, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Well, some of us do. <laughs> I mean, this is the promise. The Holy Spirit, because he is now dwelling in you, is going to transform you into a uh, a youier a you. Yeah, if I can say that, I can spit it out. You're going to be more you than you can even imagine in Christ. And that, that last preposition is important. I mean, just imagine, be, remember being five. I know Liam's, okay. yeah, I'm five. <laughs> you know, the little ones, remember, when you're little, if you had your... 35-year-old self or your 65-year-old self walk by you, would you recognize yourself? Of course not. Right? When you have no facial hair, you can't, you can't imagine what that would be like to have facial hair. You pretend, but you wouldn't even have a clue what you would be like. I mean, physically on one hand, but even where you would be in life, what you would be doing, why you would be doing it. I had no desire to be a pastor. If you asked me 15, 20, I think the number keeps getting higher, 20 years ago. I don't want to be like my dad. Public speaking was the worst thing I could think of. If you wanted to torture me, tell me to go talk to people. But that's the picture that Paul's telling you, that you will be somebody that you can't even imagine. You're going to be like Christ. Your iniquities straightened out for the first time. You know, being born with a dislocated heart, 
It's going to be popped back into joint. You're going to love your neighbor. We can't even imagine what that would be like. I mean, if you and I were to see our redeemed self, a self without pride, we'd fall down and worship. Say, man, this, this person's like God. They're like Jesus. Because that's where, that's where all of creation is heading. And so this is our hope. The hope of a groaning creation is that it will be transformed when we, the groaning church, will be transformed. I said, I want you to see that our hope is not in vain. Your hope is not in vain. Our groaning is not in vain. Now, here's where we come to the end, the, the hope of a groaning spirit. If you look at verses 26 to 28, Paul says, Now that we wait for this with patience, we're supposed to pray. Not getting mad when you suffer, uh, counting it a joy to suffer with Christ. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to, to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself prays for us, interceding for us with groanings too deep for words. So you got this picture. Creation's groaning. You know, the hermit crab. We are groaning because we know we've been given a taste of the future, so we know that's coming. And Paul says the Holy Spirit's groaning with us. And because we are groaning, we're going to find ourselves in situations where we do not know what to pray. I mean, you may say words, but they may not feel like you, they will not come out confidently. You pray for wisdom and pray for comfort and pray for relief. We understand these words according to Webster's. But really, you know, what specifically what should we ask for? God, should you take me out of this or should you use this to make me a stronger person? How do you know what's right? How do you know when God should take you out of it? I mean, Paul's assumption is that we as Christians, in our weakness, we will all get to this point. Or really, that we all live in this point. We live at this place. Where you say, I just can't. I don't know what to say. We need, we need the Holy Spirit to pray for us. And there's a story about... C.K. Lewis, this, the comedian, I mean, I'm not recommending it to him, he's pretty crude and foul. But as he was, before he got famous, uh, before he became successful, he was just drowning in futility. And his friend tells the story of coming to his apartment one day, uh, noticing on the floor in the kitchen was just a broken bottle of Tabasco sauce. You know, just a little small, small mess, nothing, nothing huge. Well, three weeks later when he came back, it was still there. And his friend gently said to, to C.K., you know, are you going to clean that up? And C.K., sitting on the couch, said, I just can't. I'm so broken by how hard this is right now. I can't even get up the couch to take the basic act of sweeping up a small mess. Because if I clean up that mess, that would be acknowledging that my life is manageable. And I can't even say that right now. That's groaning. That's weakness. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit. That's why we, God's given us the Holy Spirit to pray, that we have a helper, that the Holy Spirit does something for us. He interprets those groans when you say, I just can't. And he puts them into words and ways that the Father hears. And the Father then throws our prayers back down to earth and they thunder. And his will is done in our life. 
No, he works all these things out for our good, as Paul says. So this is our hope. This is the reality in which you and I live as believers. That to be a Christian is to have God pray for you. I mean, it's turning this whole series on its head. Because the outside view of prayer is always, what do I say to God to get him to act on my behalf? The gospel says, you, all you have to do is say, I can't. And God comes rushing in and he prays for you first. Jesus, he's interceding for us in heaven. We as God's children have Jesus praying for us. And so right now he's sitting in heaven with crucified hands. So the next time, well, or maybe even currently, as you do something you know you shouldn't, he's up there pleading, saying, Father, He's yours. Look at my hands. You cannot punish him for that. It's done. It is finished. It, justice demands you forgive them. Right. To be a Christian is to be prayed for. And then we have the Holy Spirit praying. And the Holy Spirit is... Commentators can't understand why the Holy Spirit would be groaning. I mean, they, they struggle with this. And what, but what it's saying is he's identifying with you. It's God with you being afflicted by your afflictions. And the good news is that the Holy Spirit is God. Right? He knows your heart. He knows what you're struggling with. He knows God's will for your life. And so he translates your groaning into beautiful prayers that will transform you into something you could never imagine. You wouldn't even know to ask for. I mean, my 20-year-old self prayed for a lot of dumb things, and I'm glad they didn't come true. And I've groaned. We've all groaned. God, this is awful. Take it away. And the Holy Spirit's job is to make sense of all that. It's his delight, it's joy to pray for God's will in your life. And he does it with an inarticulate Groanings. If you read this, he says it's with groanings too deep for words. And it's not saying, like our Pentecostal brothers and sisters would want to argue that this is another heavenly language that comes out of our mouths. It's saying it's the Spirit praying, not us. You can argue speaking in tongues in a different, different passage. This isn't, this isn't something to, to, to use as a backup. I'm not saying the Holy Spirit is groaning. It's the Spirit of Christ. And if you remember Christ, what did he do? He incarnated. He came from heaven to earth to live among our groaning. You remember Jesus at the grave of Lazarus? He wept and he groaned. I mean, the Greek word says he was deeply moved. And what it's saying is he got angry. He got angry at death. He got angry at what sin had done to this world. He got angry at the curse. And he snorts like an angry bull. He groans for the people he loves. And raises Lazarus from the dead, signing his own death warrant. Because as soon as he raised Lazarus from the dead, they immediately started plotting Jesus' death. Jesus weeps. He groans to identify with us. And the Spirit is now doing that for us right here, right now. So the Holy Spirit's job 
is to translate our groaning in ways that are too deep for words. There's a mystery here. To ask God for what we need at the right time to help us believe, to, to help us hold on as he works out all things for our good, for the good of those who love God. I mean, the beauty of this is that we get to pray. We do pray because we are prayed for. I mean, all of creation is groaning. You and I are groaning. The Holy Spirit is groaning. God is groaning for us for our good. And when you get this picture, that's why Paul uses the image of childbirth, sighing and throbbing at pain, all looking forward to that joy that is set before them, the revealing. You, know, you have the, the Lion King moment where you get to hold up the child proudly and show him to the world. That, that's what heaven's going to be like. These are my children in whom I love. And that'll be true because the gospel is true. Because his body was broken for us. Because his blood was spilt for us for the remission of sins. That's just the foretaste of what, what will come. How do you get it? According to Romans 8, you just believe. Be connected to Jesus. And the way to be connected to Jesus, to be in him, is to have faith, and it's not about the, the strength of your faith or the, how big and how deep and how wide your faith. Even faith as small as a mustard seed is enough to move mountains. You become God's child, and he groans for you. He aches for you. He hurts with you because he knows what you will be. His child, free for, for the first time. And so... Why should you pray? Because you are first prayed for in Christ, initiated by the Father and are continually prayed for, even by the Holy Spirit. And so I hope that you can say with, uh, well, this is Dostoevsky, where he says, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for, so that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage. And that in the world's finale, when everything ends in the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts. It will comfort all resentments. For the, it'll, make up for, it'll atone for all the crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they've shed. It will not only make it possible to forgive those who have heart, hurt you, but it will also justify everything that you went through. For we know that all, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Let's pray. And Father, we ache and long for this to be true. And we know our sin, we know our flaws, we know, um, well, Romans 7. There are things that we have been doing that we know we ought not to do, and we do them anyway. Uh, we just can't stop ourselves. And so we cry out, Abba, Father, who can save us from this body of death? And we thank you that you sent your Son, Jesus, to take away our condemnation, to save us from judgment, to make us the first fruits of salvation. And so I pray that as we come to the Lord's Supper, as we come to your table, you will give us a taste of this future glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.